You're listening to WTF 2050. What's Tasmania's future? Thirty years goes like that. I wonder. We've actually shown we can do these sorts of things without risk. There is nothing. Hello. Hello. I'm Leanne Minshall, and I'm Anna Bateman. Welcome to WTF 2050, and today we are talking to Robin Banks. Robin was Tasmania's Anti-Discrimination Commissioner, and I reckon we should just get right into it. Let's get straight stuck into this one, Anna. And this morning we're lucky enough to have with us Robin Banks, who for quite some time was the Anti-Discrimination Commissioner in Tasmania. So welcome, Robin. Thank you. How long were you in that job for? Seven years. So... It would have been interesting and challenging. Yeah, it was fantastic. Great to have the opportunities to step into, for me, a very different frame of reference as a discrimination and human rights lawyer. I've always been on the outside of the statutory authorities and often critical of the way they operate and good to have the sort of challenge of being in a role, in a statutory role where you have to administer the law and you have to think about all those issues about impartiality but also promotion of awareness in a way that takes everybody on the journey really. Yeah. Yeah. Are you Tasmanian? Yeah, I am. Oh, okay. Grew up here, born and bred. Whereabouts? Uh, About two blocks from the university. Really? Yeah. Yeah, so I I grew up here. I left here when I was 18 to study architecture in Melbourne Mm -hmm. uh, and I was away with, you know, home visits for 30 years. Okay. Yeah. What took you from architecture to... What was the route from architecture? The journey. So while I was studying architecture, I worked for an architect and I got involved in editing his master's. He was doing a, a master's on the way people use urban space, which was very fascinating to me. It still is. And... I realised I wasn't going to be an architect. I realised that much as I love the built environment and I love design, it was not the thing that was going to be my lifelong passion. Yeah. The editing work I did for him, I thought, oh, this is interesting. So I got a job with a small editing and typesetting outfit in Melbourne in the sort of Fitzroy area, so very groovy downtown. And from there went and worked for a workers' collective called Bluestone, which produced Outrage magazine, which no longer exists, and a whole lot of gay and lesbian community newspapers and publications, but also did typesetting for university student unions, that kind of stuff. And we got the job to typeset the first community-produced law handbook. which Fitzroy Legal Service was producing. So I got sort of interested in the law. Yeah. (laughs) I thought, oh, I like this thing. This is quite interesting. Uh, And through that I got involved as a volunteer in a legal centre and then I got a job in the Federation of Community Legal Centres in Victoria, so in the peak body for CLCs, and got more and more interested in the law but then got less and less enamoured with some of the politics of the community sector. And I thought, no, I'm going to just give this away and go travelling. I travelled around Australia for about 18 months, had a little stint working in a resort in Cairns, which was a fascinating (laughs) experience, and then ended up in Alice Springs working to set up an advocacy service for people with disability. Okay. Because I knew about sort of legal systems and stuff. I learned a lot in that role. And from there I thought... Having a law degree would be helpful. Yeah. <laughs> and so I began studying law part-time and externally through Deakin University okay. and then transferred to New South Wales Uni when I moved to Sydney 
to work at the Disability Discrimination Legal Centre there. Right. And from there, it sort of takes me on the journey pretty obviously from doing that, finishing my law degree. I went overseas and worked in Canada at the Human Rights Commission there Mm. for the best part of a year, came back, had a few years in private practice in Sydney, which was great, worked for a really good firm, and then uh, had the most extraordinary opportunity to be the CEO of the Public Interest Advocacy Centre, which is, well, it certainly was the biggest community legal centre in Australia and the only one funded to do public interest work, test case work, law reform work. Is it still funded? It is still funded. It's gone through some really challenging times after I left when Mm. there were quite significant changes in politics and um, attitudes to that kind of work. And uh, so I I guess I had the luck of being in the right place at the right time when our funding was very um, solid. Uh, And that was in Sydney? And that was in Sydney. And then... I grew up here, so I always wanted to come back, and the job as anti-discrimination commissioner was advertised, and I applied for it, and I was lucky enough to get it. Yeah, so (laughs) that's how you go from, you know, here in architecture to... (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I still have a lot of interest in the built environment. My partner Mm. runs an access consultancy, and I do some work with him because I understand how plans work, and I understand how access works for people with disability, so... What made you want to come back to Tassie? Look, I think it's a place where you can make things happen. Mm. And a friend of mine who was one of the uh, commissioners in one of the other jurisdictions used to describe it as the potential for a jurisdiction to sing. Nice. (laughs) And Tasmania is one of those places where, given the right mix of people and the right attitudes, you can make things sing. You can make really positive, progressive change. You can take people with you and... You can test ideas in a way that is really hard in, say, Sydney, where you might test something in in downtown Sydney, but it's got to work for the whole of New South Wales. And outback New South Wales is so different. Whereas here, we that uh, crossover into country, rural, remote is much smoother and it's a smaller environment. It's Mm. easier to have the conversations, I Mm. think. Yeah. Well, I think we're still one of the most connected states to each other, and that's probably a function of size or history or probably a bit of both. Yeah. yeah. Um, It might be about being an island as well. Could be. (laughs) (laughs) That leads us nicely, really, into if you could cast your mind forward to 2050, um, so, you know, it's about a generation's time, what type of progressive legal systems or processes would you like to see in Tasmania? Um, I certainly think I'd like to see a legal system that was much more fit for purpose, that was much more about helping people to resolve disputes in ways that don't tear apart lives and communities, and I mean that in emotional senses rather than physical senses. I mean, we have a legal system that was developed out of Britain in the sort of Middle Ages, And I think when it probably was first developing, it was designed for local communities. It was local people resolving disputes through a formal process and it was about trying to remove the anger and aggression and potential for physical violence as a means to resolve disputes. We've moved a long way from that to a system that seems to have forgotten that the law is about regulating behaviour and it's about saying this behaviour is to be encouraged and endorsed and this behaviour is not okay if a society is to work. I think we need, as a legal system, to have a much better understanding that what we're doing is dealing with human behaviour. And 
we're also dealing with people's lives and it's critically important, I think, that we move to a more, a less litigious and a more what they'd call alternative dispute resolution, but a, a system of dispute resolution that allows people to engage with the emotion that's happening as well as the factual matrix. So for me, that means, you know, the kind of work you do in discrimination law, which is the conciliation work, good conciliation helps people to see the other person's point of view and to understand that people aren't doing things out of animus or bad faith. They're doing things because they can't see your perspective yeah. and they have a particular set of emotional history and baggage, they're acting the way they think emotionally they should be acting. And if you can help people to see those perspectives, it can really open up a conversation that's quite different. And I think that's true not just at the micro level of individual disputes, but at the broader level. And I think one of the exciting things that was happening when I came back here to take up the role as commissioner was the forestry agreement Mm. where people got together and actually sought to understand each other's perspectives. You could see a a potential different future in the forest and in Tasmania (laughs) as a result. Sadly, that obviously got unravelled. You know, I find it quite extraordinary for a government to intervene in that situation to unravel an agreement that people had really worked hard to reach. Yeah. You know, the role of government should be to support resolution of disputes mm. and to support groups that find a way to get together and mm. find answers. And so I think that's the other thing is that, you know, I hope by 2050 we've completely left behind us this obsession with majority government, right. <laughs> which I just find completely bizarre. And all my European friends go, really, what's, you know, yeah. why, do, why do people do this? Particularly in the context of a country in which we've had coalition governments regularly. Yeah. But for some reason, that's different. The coalition's a coalition. Coalition. Yeah, exactly. The coalition's a coalition. And for some reason, that coalition is considered almost a natural event, and yet any other coalition isn't. And we still use the legal system and the political system in the same way, which is it's a battleground Mm. in which you take no prisoners. And it's not about looking for engagement between very contested ideas Mm. in which you actually are looking for the best solution as opposed to the solution that fits your power base. Power base, yeah. Yeah. I found it quite distressing at the tail end of the former um, Labor-Green coalition here when they split it that it was like, no, no, we weren't very good. It's like, (laughs) really? Why would you say that? You know, and, and I understand the desire of political parties to govern in majority. Yeah. But not at the cost of your reputation. Like, yeah. really, you know, why would you trash what you've done yeah. in order to say, vote for us and nobody else? And, you know, to me, that sort of fixation is quite problematic. So I think it's about conversations where you, you point out things were possible that had never been possible before. Mm. Things get done in more respectful ways, ways that take account of more people's interests rather than less. Mm. I think it is about community conversations and people in leadership positions in political parties having the courage to stand up and say, this is working. Yeah. And while it may not be our ideal, it is working. And I'd quite like them to question even that premise that it's not the ideal because I'm not sure it's not the ideal because I think um, having to nut out complicated compromises, it's more likely to end up with a good outcome, I think, for more people.
You know, one of the things I saw when the Liberal government came in here, which I absolutely applauded him for, was Nick McKim, who, who had been the Education Minister, commending the government on appointing Jeremy Rockliffe as the incoming Education Minister and saying, I think he'll do a good job. Yeah. And it's like, yay, you know, here's a person <laughs> on one side of politics saying that's a good decision. Yeah. And I think he was right. I think it was a good decision. And I think, you know, and I actually contacted him and I said, thank you for doing that. It shows that, you know, it's possible to have uh, conversations across the political divide as we see it. it it's interesting for me because having had a year in Canada where I had quite a lot of contact with Supreme Court decisions and a Supreme Court that operates in a very interesting legal framework, and that is that it operates at the crossover of common law and the civil law systems that the French and Europeans developed. And because you've got civil law systems in Quebec and other parts of Canada and you've got common law in the English-speaking, they actually have to take account of both ways of thinking about law. And so it's got a more sophisticated approach and a very strong emphasis, when I was there at least, on understanding their role as the final court of appeal that, that set what the law is. You know, and people say, well, judges aren't lawmakers. Well, they are. They clearly interpret the law and apply the law in different ways because you can. And law in Canada, it seems to me, under the guidance of Supreme Courts over years, have been very um, much thinking about, well, what's the impact of our decision on our society? Mm. So they don't just think about what, what's the impact on the parties in this dispute. They actually take a step back. And I think as a final court of appeal, that's a really appropriate thing to do. I mean, yes, you don't necessarily want all the courts to be going, what's the, you know, what's yeah. the bigger picture? Because their role is to help people resolve disputes. But once you're at the final appeal level and you are actually saying this is the law going forward, it has to be clear. It has to be workable. We in Australia, I think, have had a very... We've had a long history of very technical application of the law yeah. and interpretation by courts that often doesn't see, in my view, the woods for the trees. You get this answer here and there are consequences that are just enormous beyond it. Uh, and in discrimination law, we see very, quite regularly, very narrow interpretation of what is supposed to be uh, beneficial legislation based on international law principles. And none of that stuff the international law stuff finds its way in, or not very much of it, into the local interpretation. You know, sometimes that changes and you get tribunals and courts that are doing fantastic work that really get that, you know, what they're in the business of is resolving disputes in ways that um, are helpful. You're listening to WTF 2050. What's Tasmania's future? So are there any courts or administrative bodies in Tasmania that already play that role? Or could they play that role? So what's an example where you could see, not at the moment, but... Tasmania could take a leadership role mm. by saying, okay, we now want this court or this legislative body to not only deliver their findings in an adversarial you win, you lose, yeah. but this is the benefit or this is the effect on the broader yeah. community. Okay. I think we're already seeing some really interesting work in the Magistrates Court. It began under the leadership of Michael Hill as Chief Magistrate and is continuing under 
Kath Geeson as the um, current Chief Magistrate, the therapeutic jurisprudence in relation to drug and alcohol, um, young people, mental health. And I think that's really showing a different way of thinking about applying the law. And particularly when you've got a community that has quite high levels of disadvantage that are often intergenerational. So it's an opportunity to bring a more understanding approach to the situation people find themselves and to give people a chance to change yeah. and to be different. So there's that. There's also, I guess, a huge opportunity on the horizon, which is the proposal which is unifying all of our administrative tribunals into a single, what they'd call in most states, a CAT, a Civil right. and Administrative Tribunal. I'm hoping it'll get called TASCAT because I think that's sort of... Snappier. Snappy. Snappy. <laughs> um, rather than TCAT, which I think is just... Not so cool. Yeah. Um, so that work... <laughs> well, the acronyms are important. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Absolutely. And we can do what the UN does, which is create these weird things that are not really acronyms, yeah. because TCAT would be and TASCAT isn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I always find language and the way we use it very fascinating. Um, so that work is very much work that was commenced and driven by former Attorney General Vanessa Goodwin with really fantastic project coordination by a guy who's the registrar for REMPAT, the, I can never remember what the acronym stands for, but the planning tribunal. Jared Bryan has been doing that work and if we can get that right, it can be very much a tribunal in a progressive, and by progressive I mean thinking about how you resolve disputes, taking account of not just what the law says, but what we know about how people behave and what we know about how people interact. So in my experience, the best tribunal I've ever worked with as a discrimination law was the New South Wales, and at the time it was the anti-discrimination division of the Equal Opportunity Tribunal, of the Administrative Decisions Tribunal. So quite a broad body, but there was a division within it. And they always sat as a tribunal, as three, not as one which meant you had a legal member and you had two community members Mm. with relevant expertise. So what they brought to the decision-making was an understanding of the situation of the parties and of the broader issues. So, for example, if it was a disability discrimination case, you'd have a member on the tribunal who understood disability. You might have another member from the relevant industry area, so, you know, an employment body or a, you know, medical body or whatever else so that you know the challenges for everybody involved were much more richly understood in discrimination law the reason i think that tribunal worked really well is in discrimination law the vast majority of applicants claimants have no access to legal representation and so they're at a disadvantage in the traditional adversarial system yeah They don't know how to put a case together. They don't know what evidence they need to bring. They don't know how to make legal submissions. Mm. And yet they have to become legal experts Mm. to run their own case. Whereas a good tribunal is often under the law empowered to actually say, well, we'll do all that. You can tell us what witnesses you want to bring, but we might in fact say, we want to hear from this person here. Yep. And I guess going back to your thing about getting people to understand the other person's point of view... I mean, you'd like to think that the person who's discriminated against 
it would actually benefit them yeah. to not go into an adversarial system yeah. where they come home and go, ha, I beat them, it's true, yeah. I never did discriminate, yeah. rather than go home and say, well, I've just reflected on my behaviour yeah. a bit and now I'm yeah. actually a better person. Yeah, <laughs> it is, if it's done well, a fantastic opportunity for everybody to reflect, not just the person who's alleged to have discriminated, but also but, the person who's brought the complaint, who may yeah. have misread the situation. Yeah. And you know, just thought the whole world is against me, this person's just part of that, I'm going to go after them. Mm. Um, it does happen. And it's mm. not that they're vexatious or any of those or really malicious. terrible things yeah. or malicious. It's just that they see the world through particular lenses mm. and this is part of their yeah. experience of life. Yeah. And giving them a chance to reflect as well and think, oh, well, maybe this person isn't evil. Yeah. <laughs> the baddie that I framed them as. Maybe they just misunderstood my situation. Yeah. If the formal legal process can then support that rather than undermine it or set up a completely conflicting approach, I think that's a really positive development if we can get there. Yeah. One of the things that I want to come back to that you said before, which is interesting, is that Tasmania does have a lot of intergenerational disadvantage. Mm. But if part of a non-adversarial inquisitorial process is that you see things from other people's perspective... It could actually be that Tasmania has an opportunity to use the depth of disadvantage that we have to understand why disadvantage occurs and then try and make it better. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's about having a legal system that's compassionate. Right. And is about justice in a sense that's not technical. Yeah. Um, And we're a long long way from that. I mean, it's interesting because the Mental Health Tribunal here and the guardianship board are examples of tribunal structures where there are more than one member, so you have expertise outside of the legal expertise. So it does happen here, and um, sometimes the the problem I've experienced is that you say, you can do this, and people go, oh, no, it might work in Sydney, but it won't work here. Yeah. And you go, really? (laughs) We're not that different. We're all human beings. And, yeah, it won't work by picking it up and plonking it. No. Absolutely. So we already have systems where there are people with different expertise in decision-making bodies um, and who do their work in a much less adversarial way. So we have it. And, yes, I think it is a chance for us to, using the depth of understanding we could develop around disadvantage, to change the whole cultural norms. Rosalie Martin's goal for 2050 is that we don't have jails in Tasmania. That's a pretty good goal. Yeah. (laughs) But I think if we're going to reach that goal, we also need a compassionate and inquisitorial form of legal structures, not adversarial. Yeah, not adversarial and punitive. Not adversarial, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know Rosie really well. I'm on on the board of Chatter Matters and Mm. um, I have a sort of history of interest in prisons and particularly women's prisons and... For me, if we've got to have prisons, which I sort of do wonder if there's a point where we can get rid of them, I want people to come out of prison with a hope that their future is different to their past, that they can live a life where offending is really not the only option they see. And, you know, we know it's not the only option they have, but if it's the only option you can imagine... Mm. Then, then it's the only option Then you it's have. the only option you have. And yeah. so, you know, that idea, and it's the work Rosie does, of giving people hope yeah. and the skills to operate differently behaviourally, to behave differently, because it's all about communication. Yeah. Um, it's such 
uh, life-affirming work. Yeah. And it does give you the possibility that, you know, people don't re-offend and mm. people pass on better skills to their kids to deal with disputes they have yeah. in different ways. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't think it's a positive thing to put people in prison, no. particularly not for the short-term sentences that, mm. you know, certainly the significant majority of women are in prison for very short terms. Mm. Um, one of the funny upsides of prison for at least some women, it's a safe environment and it's an environment that's a bit calmer. Yeah. And so even though it's not a therapeutic environment, it may be the only environment in which doing therapeutic work with them is possible. Wow. So, Robin, in talking about having a setup that is more weighted to conciliation in terms of dispute, one thing that strikes me as a kind of a new Tasmanian is that Tasmanians seem to have, because of the history, I guess, with forestry and all that sort of thing, and hydro, I guess, going yep. further, they seem to have a greater ability to go, yeah, I get that you're working for the other side, but that's okay, let's have a beer. Yeah, so I think, I think there are two aspects of Tasmania that make conciliation a really important thing. One, because, yes, we do find ways to put our differences aside in order to have a life and to have a society and a community because otherwise there'd be particularly smaller communities that just get split down the middle and it'd be terrible, terrible. But also in a place with lots of small communities, highly adversarial systems of dispute resolution I think are unworkable, actually, at the end of the day. The level of complaint people make, formally under law, is affected by what they think it will do to their relationships. Mm-hmm. And so in being anti-discrimination commissioner, one of the challenges was to recognise that even though there's a level of discrimination going on, most people, many people, are not going to go to the law in the formal sense to try and get a better outcome to get their rights fulfilled because they don't want to destroy their relationships that they rely on in their small community. They need their community to still like them. And so they tend to sort of put up with stuff they might not otherwise put up with. And that's not a good thing. But it really does put the imperative back on people like commissioners and others who have responsibility for administering law and the state government more generally to actually change the settings. So when we see systemic problems, actually addressing them through systemic measures, through leadership, rather than saying, well, we'll leave resolution of discrimination and prejudice up to those individuals who are disadvantaged by it. So there are two things in there. One is that I think conciliation, particularly if we could have systems that made conciliation more available without a complaint. So, you know, ways into conciliation through things like neighbourhood dispute resolution, um, those sorts of models. Citizen juries. Citizen juries, various things like that. So ways in that don't require what people see as a step up into a more formal process. When people get notified there's an allegation of discrimination against them and they get it from an official like the commissioner and it's on letterhead and it's a quite formal letter, even when you write the letter as carefully and as plain Englishly and people freak out and it's understandable you know it's sort of it's I would freak out yeah and part of the work we were doing um, was to try and make sure that when people got those letters they didn't freak out quite as badly so you know my staff got into the practice of contacting people by phone first 
because a human voice at the other end of the telephone line yeah. saying, look, I'm just ringing you to let you know that we've received a complaint, um, we'll be dealing with it, you're going to get a formal letter because we have to send you a formal letter. We you know, want, want you to know that it's not a finding, it's, it's simply you've got an opportunity to respond to what this complaint says, you know, to go through the process. And it just takes the heat down a couple of steps. Now, that kind of process, the human contact, certainly made a difference. I think there are ways to help people to deal with tensions before they turn into disputes. Yeah. And I think it takes people having the skills to name stuff up. So as well as being involved with Chatter Matters, I'm also involved with A Fairer World, which is a tiny, like Chatter Matters, tiny NGO. It's got, you know, half a staff member sort of stuff. It came out of the idea of think globally, act locally, development, global development, all that kind of stuff. So it, it was a, a global development education centre 30 years ago. It's now very much focused on how do we give people the skills to engage in the complexities of life without tensions becoming you know, yeah. terribly bad. So the biggest bit of work it's doing at the moment is a program called Let's Get Together, which is a school program. It runs for 20 weeks, I think it is, where it's working with kids to understand diversity so that different people come to things with different experiences and also people are different. And to give them the skills to, when they're feeling angry and upset, how to deal with the person who's made them feel that way without it being just escalating and turning it into a complete you know, disaster for not only them but their, all their school friends. Um, so it's partly about that idea of helping people to deal with conflict before it becomes unresolvable <laughs> and how to engage as active citizens. You can probably see a bit of a thread here going on, me being involved with both of those organisations. Yeah, yeah. I am really interested in how we as human beings interact with each other and how we build the skills to do it better so that when challenges come along, we don't just become positional. I think it is possible. I think we do need to work in schools. And I know that there's a lot of focus on the three R's. I think kids having... The capacity to read is one of the most important things in the world. I, I'm a literacy tutor and I work with people who, who don't have literacy and yeah. I just go, seriously, <laughs> we're so privileged when we do. It's critically important we give kids those skills yeah. and it's critically important that they develop the other life skills mm. of how to engage in an increasingly complex world. Robin Banks, thank you very much. Thank you and very excited to be part of this project and trying to envision a fabulous future for Tasmania. That's a lot of fantastic ideas there from Robin Banks, as you'd expect. And one of the things that really struck me, Anna, is that some of the ideas she talks about how human beings communicate and interact with each other, I mean, they're global ideas, they're certainly national ideas. What's fascinating to me about Tasmania is that, you know, we're big enough to matter, but we're small enough to manage. And we can start thinking about doing some of these programs here in Tasmania really better than anywhere else in the world. Absolutely. And nice to hear her mention Chatter Matters. And of course, mm. in our last episode of this first series, we're going to be talking to Rosalie Martin, who is the founder of Chatter Matters. And Rosalie has done some amazing work. But yes, thank you very much to Robin Banks for all that time. 
And here's a wee taste of next week's episode with Kirsha Kashala. Kirsha's American and she came to Tassie when she hooked up with the founder of Mona, David Walsh. However, this is the least interesting thing about her. <laughs> she has a long track record of working with and making happen community art projects that are inspired by locals. So I had this interest in starting a hacking school out there. It's kind of my long-term dream is there'll be this incredible multi-million dollar James Bond, you know, <laughs> on the shore converted wastewater facility where you arrive by ion battery powered speedboat <laughs> to and from the city and you're working on like cyber security and all kinds of future technologies. That's the big goal. WTF 2050 is hosted by me, Anna Bateman. And me, Leanne Minshall. We are supported by the Australia Institute and all of our excellent music and post-production is by Fletcher Babb. Extra recording, Michael Shelley at The Green Room in Hobart. Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow the conversation on Facebook, Twitter and at our website, wtf2050.org.au.